Black Pearl, precious little girl, you've been in the background much too long. Black Pearl, precious little girl, come into the sunshine where you belong. Black Pearl, black girl, hiding behind the body of a little boy. You knew you were different from the start. Deep in your heart, you would always stand apart from those who were normal, whatever that is. This is Shonda with Conversations with Shonda, and I'm here today with Andrea Jenkins. Welcome. Thank you. How are you doing, Shonda? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. So we're going to start out for uh, the listeners and just have um, you introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. My name is Andrea Jenkins. I am the vice president of the Minneapolis City Council. I am a poet, a writer, an artist, um, curator. A politician. Parent. (laughs) Grandparent. Grandparent. I have three grandchildren. Cutie are pies. literally my heart. So pretty awesome. So you know, I went and looked, and and I, I did a little bit of research on you, mm-hmm, and I've mm-hmm. known you like I feel like my entire life. Yeah. Um, but I'm like, Andrew got a Wikipedia page. Got a wiki. <laughs> got a wiki. I'm like, <laughs> let me read this. They say American policy aide, politician, writer, performing artist, poet, and transgender activist. Mm. She is known for being the first African-American openly transgender woman elected to public office in the United States. I don't know how you get a wiki page. Like, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I was just online I mean, you have to day. be notable, right? Apparently. I'm, apparently. I think you ought to claim that. <laughs> I was and just then, online and just came across a wiki page. I'm like, well, there's some wrong information. Like, they have my birth date wrong. My birthday's wrong on everything, too. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the first openly transgender woman in the United States, mm-hmm. how did that feel? Um, you know, most days it doesn't really feel that much different for me. But it is Black History Month, and, you know, people kind of make a big deal out of it. And it is, I mean, it is a big deal, right? It's like... When you think about African-Americans in this country um, and the number of people who have been elected to representative offices um, for for black people, generally, it's very small compared to the yeah. um, broader population. And for LGBT-identified people, like literally, there are only 800 LGBT identified elected officials in the country. So when you put it in that context, mm-hmm. um, there may be 10 out trans people, mm-hmm. a little more than that, maybe yeah. 13. But to be in that number, it's quite, Incredible. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I come from a, a legacy of enslaved people. Yeah. Who built this country. Who, who built this country. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, we were just given the, just got the right to vote. You know, less than 60 years ago. Yeah. And now I'm in elected office. It's it's amazing. It is amazing. I pinch myself every morning when I walk in City Hall. Do you really? I do. Did you see yourself as a politician? I I saw myself as a person who would use policy hmm. to help people's lives. Right. But I never really thought about what form that might take. Would it be an attorney? Would it be, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I worked as a policy aide for a long time. And people would ask me, when am I running? going to run for office? And I would always respond, I'm running away from office. <laughs> <laughs> like, I knew how tough the job was. and uh, But it really is an enormous honor to be able to represent the communities um, in in spaces of power, spaces that have historically been off limits to to black folks, to LGBT identified folks, to transgender individuals. So um, when the opportunity arose, I felt like I needed to step into it and uh, and you did and step up, yeah. So when I think when I think about the first and um, maybe even not especially, but when I think about the first, um, you know, where, you know, we lead with such humility, you lead with such humility. But I do think that represent uh, representation matters. Absolutely. It just matters, period. Yeah. And it's important for other people that might be struggling with either identity just struggling with identity, whether yeah. or not it's leadership identity, whether or not it's personal, like whatever it is, they're struggling mm-hmm. with identity. And um, do you feel like you being in the role is as much around inspiring and um, presenting what's possible as it is about the policy? I, I honestly believe it's an equal amount of both. You know, I I won't name names, but a number of people have said to me that I inspire them to run for office and and they are now in elected office. You know, our, our council meetings are televised. Mm-hmm. They are every other Friday. When when I am on the dais at, at the council meetings, I always wear purple so that young uh, queer identified people can can see some some hope and some um some inspiration so i it's it's as much about the representation matters as it is the policies mm-hmm. for me so you know i mentioned that i've i've known you forever so i knew you back when and i knew you through um the transition uh-huh and I was thinking about this um, as I was preparing, and I'm like, wow, you know, it feels like the transition was more than what was obvious, right? Like, to me, it's like your leadership felt different. Maybe it's because we were younger. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh-huh. But, yeah. I mean, it wasn't like I didn't think you were smart. 
you know, mm-hmm. or any of those types of things. But I just, I just felt like, man, it's like, it's, it, I just feel like you've just like increased every year at, a, at what had to be a, a difficult time. It feels like there was so much that was birthed through that. That is a, an amazing observation, Shonda. You know, all my life, I've, I've really known internally my truest identity. However, you know, I was, I was trying to conform to society, you know, as human beings, we, we want to feel loved. Right. We want to feel accepted. You know, we want to be a part of something, our families, our communities. We need that. That's how human beings thrive. Yeah. And so I, you know, tried to conform to societal expectations, to familial expectations, um, cultural expectations of what a black man should be. As you know, I like I grew up. I played high school football. Like I was the president of my college fraternity for a while. I really tried to conform, but in all of that energy spent trying to conform. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't, it it sort of tamped down. Yeah, what was in you? Right, and and once I had the courage to say to myself, "This is who you are. You must live your life authentically as possible." Once I did that, it did. It seemed like mm-hmm. flowers just began to blossom. To use a, a euphemism. Yeah. Uh, it took me 20 years to, to get my uh, bachelor's degree. And I know that a big part of that was struggles with my gender identity. Mm-hmm. And like as soon as I came out, like, bam, bachelor's degree, got it done. Mm. Then I went on to graduate school and got uh, a master's degree in community economic development. I've always been a writer and a poet, and so I ended up going to Hamlin and getting another MFA in creative writing. Yeah, it you know I I became a Bush Fellow. Like yeah. things just opened up. I, I it was like this freedom to be. Mm-hmm. It's kind of unex unexplainable, inexplicable. However, I would say that really coming to terms with my own reality. Mm-hmm. And my own um, authenticity really set all of that in motion. Yeah, I mean that's that's something that's pretty tough to do. I think for people to really live into their full selves. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, I know on the podcast with uh, Caroline Wanga, we talk about oh, okay. just her transformation over the years uh-huh. of like as she talks about wearing her her cardigans to like her dynamic <laughs> um, self today, uh-huh. and it was always in there. But it was when she stopped trying to conform. Mm. That she was also able to like take on new risk mm-hmm. and new things. Yeah, that's um, a real thing. You're uh, you're the first person that I knew to transition. Mm-hmm. Now I know a lot. Oh, good. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I just have so much respect for how I observed it. Right. Mm-hmm. And I've been thinking um, this week too about Dwayne Wade's daughter. Mm. Yeah. And you know I'm seeing all this Kaya. ugly. Yeah, Kaya, is it Kaya? Kaya. This, um, you know, trans, trans daughter who I think is 11 and, um, having, you know, some of this online stuff that's really pretty awful. And, 
you know, I guess I just want to just reinforce the point that you said that you knew your whole life, but you just didn't really have the place, the confidence, the uh-huh. support to, to to come out. And, and when you did, um, everything sort of manifests. And I just think that when we sometimes think it's something that it turns on when you're an adult and we disregard what young people are feeling or what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And um, I hope that, that there's people that are just paying attention. Can I just say yeah. I am so, so proud of, Dwayne Wade and and Gabrielle Union for, you know, listening to their young daughter and and hearing and supporting her. Transgender people, you know, there's a crisis in the transgender community, particularly for black women. Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that. You know, last year in 2019, there were 26 black women who were murdered, black trans women, simply for being who they were, who they are. And um, I think you know the the poverty rate for transgender people is astronomical. The average wages are about ten thousand dollars a year. Uh, homelessness, access to health care, mm. education, attainment. Because people get bullied in school, they are you know they drop out, they leave, you know, for for their own protection. But family. Transgender people who have family support do like 80 times better than trans-identified people who do not have that kind of support. And unfortunately, in the in the black community, that support is is less than it is in some other communities. Mm-hmm. And to see Dwayne Wade and and Gabrielle Union step up and be supportive parents. And be very, not only just being, you know, because you could be supportive right. and not be on Public. social media <laughs> and not, you mm-hmm. know, do TV interviews and all of those things. But to be out and open, I think it creates space for for other people to, to step into that mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Can you say a little bit on your um, activism related to uh, missing and murdered trans women? Well, you know, as a poet and a writer, I really try to... Um, bring that into the conversation as much as I can. I Before I was elected to public office, I worked at the University of Minnesota and I conducted the Transgender Oral History Project in which I interviewed 193 uh, trans and gender non-conforming people. I was on the other side of the microphone mm-hmm. like yeah, you are yeah. today. And that that form of activism was really about bringing trans stories to light in their most authentic voice, like not me trying to tell their stories or the media trying to tell it, but trans-identified people themselves telling their own stories and then documenting that and preserving that for history. I I feel like that's a big part of activism. You know, I travel around the country and talk to a lot of groups about the issues that impact trans communities. I certainly do that here locally at the University of Minnesota, the Mayo Clinic, St. Thomas University, all over the place. Uh, Just this past Wednesday, I was on McAllister College um, speaking. And so, you know, that's kind of my form of activism. Mm -hmm. Um, Not much of a marcher or you know, signs and that kind of thing. Mm. Though I respect that and I know we need that. Yeah. 
That's just not yeah, that's my, not my way. Thing yeah. yeah. When um, you know, as you're researching and talking to people and and just thinking about um the challenges, do you physically feel safe? Um in the city, are you, you know, is it relative? I mean, there's places I go to and I'm like, I don't know if I belong here. Yeah. Um, I mean, is, is the level of, do you fear? Do you have fears around behaviors or? Up until about three and a half years ago. Really? <laughs> I felt really safe in most places. Oh, I didn't expect for you to say that. I thought you were going to say, okay, go ahead. Now? Since this administration has been in office um, and uh, the vitriol, because just think about it, before this administration, LGBT rights, trans rights, everything was on a very much upward swing. Mm -hmm. 2015, the Supreme Court said same-sex marriage was legal. In 2014, Minnesota legislatively said, which hadn't happened anywhere in the country, mm-hmm. said that that same-sex marriage was was legal. Transgender rights, you know, President Obama issued all kind of executive orders that made it safe for people to go to the bathrooms that matched their identities and, you know, how schools should be able to... Uh, right, exactly. And um, that has all changed. And it's so I feel pretty safe in the city, but going to rural communities. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I was at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. And, you know, New York City is pretty mm-hmm. opening and welcoming. Yeah, but there's a place for everyone in New York City. Upstate New York, man. It's pretty conservative, mm-hmm. pretty red. And so, and on that campus, they had been having a lot of uh, issues around racism and and such. And so, I'm black, I'm transgender, I'm six feet, two inches tall. Like, I stand out um, wherever I am. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's scary. It's, it's much more... Uh, concerning now, like I said, than it has been in the in the recent past. Yeah, I guess I had never, I hadn't thought about it that way. It feels, I mean, we're just all feeling so heavy. Yeah. And um, I think um, reacting to our times in really different ways, mm-hmm. it does feel like there's this um, kind of rise in terms of conversations around race and inclusion and diversity and. Um, I know you're working on, um, on on increasing equity in our city mm-hmm. as a policymaker. Um, do you think that it's too polarizing or too, the issues are too polarized to move through them? Do you think that it requires more education? Um, what? I, I think it requires more courage. Hmm. You know, I think that... More courage and and more empathy on on the part of of white people. Um, there's many more conversations around equity, um, inclusion, fairness, and at the same time, there's 
an equal amount of pushback to those conversations. And I think a part of it is fear. Fear that people will lose um, power, power, resources. Um, and so education could be a part of it because I think a lot of people really genuinely want to do more but don't know how. So education has to be a part of that. A lot of people are just stuck and uh, and really afraid that that they're that they're going to lose something if yeah. other people are granted fairness. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why we started these conversations was around that point and we were actually in this very room having a conversation around um you know, what should these what should the conversations with Shonda be, right? Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. what should we be talking about? Sure. And should we go out and talk about um, education, which we will if it's wrapped wrapped in a story, right? Mm-hmm. But like, what where should we really? There's be a lot talking going about? on with education Woo! in the city of Minneapolis. <laughs> yes, there is today. I know. Um, so you know, but what does it mean for us to talk about racism and classism and sexism mm-hmm. and and the isms and the behaviors and um, things? And on one hand, it feels like we're talking about them everywhere. Yeah. And um, there's very few conversations that I'm in where I feel like is unguarded mm-hmm. right unless i'm with another group of black women right. like it just feels guarded yeah. and um you know me thinking how do we actually get to what we're really thinking right how do people really understand in all the ways that they might be pushing back if they don't have an awareness mm-hmm. because they've had this behavior their entire lives yeah um and so what does it look like for us um, as a foundation to go on a journey with them because we, you know, can recognize that um, we have our stuff as a sector that we right. need to wrestle down to. So there's no one perfect in this. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we will say sometimes, let's get to the action. Like, there's enough conversation. Let's get right. to the action. Right. <laughs> and, um, but I just don't know if we're having the right conversations. Do you feel like the city's having the right conversations? The point you brought up about being guarded is a really poignant um point um and i'm not sure if we are having the right conversations because you know so when you're in the workplace right you don't necessarily want to lay out all of your emotional baggage (laughs) anger (laughs) anger fears fears and the challenges that you really face and every once in a while it kind of blurts out <laughs> because the pressure is so intense. But I feel like at the city of Minneapolis, we are getting to those really, really challenging conversations. Mm-hmm. And they are really challenging. I mean, right now we're talking about how do we make the NRP program, which is no longer called NRP. Yeah, it's neighborhood revitalization. Now we call it the C. PP program, Citizen Participation Program. Okay. And these efforts are coming out of the report that Cura did? Yes. They did a racial equity equity analysis. And, you know, in that work, they determined that a large majority of the funds benefited white homeowners. And it's really not that surprising, right? I mean, there was just a report that came out yesterday that said Minneapolis 
has the lowest home ownership rate for black people in the country and subsequently the widest gap of home ownership between blacks and whites. And so 78% of all homes in Minneapolis are owned by white people. So if you have a program that's designed to assist homeowners that's, quote, race neutral, right. but all the homeowners are white, then subsequently it's going to benefit majority white people. And Cura kind of laid that out in some factual ways. And a lot of neighborhood groups, I mean, literally there's an article in the paper this week that says people feel like you're calling us racist. How do you respond to that? You know, it's um, it's a challenge to respond. I mean, <laughs> it is a challenge to respond to that. Because, first of all, we live in America, <laughs> a country that was built on racism, the 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 murder and oppression of Native Americans, the enslavement of Africans, like those are all racist and and all throughout history, yeah. racism has shaped our country. So it's hard for me as a black trans identified person to not be racist. Like, I have to work on my own biases every single day because it's all around us. It's it's in our social DNA. Yeah. And so for anybody to say, I don't have a racist bone in my body, right? It's kind of ridiculous. It doesn't right. build trust. <laughs> right. It does not build trust. You yeah. know, it doesn't build trust because they're they're not being honest. Or or they're being honest and they were raised in such a way to believe, like, I mean, you believe what your parents tell you, right? Mm -hmm. And when you don't have exposure and you can really believe that you're, you know, color neutral, I'm going to treat everybody the same. Mm -hmm. And I think by doing that, like on an interpersonal level, like you might actually do that. But to not understand how other things are shaped by race, I think is just a choice. Yeah, it's absolutely, and particularly when the data is laid out before you. So in, in 1950s, yeah, maybe so. But now, this is 2020, we, we know that redlining had a significantly negative impact on communities of color, particularly black people, but Japanese people, Jewish people, anybody who was not a white Protestant um, was redlined out of certain communities. And we still see the impacts of that today. Those redlined communities are what we call ghettos, right? Have you read The Color of Law? I have. Yeah, it's an excellent book. Uh, The author, uh, Richard uh, Rothstein, will be in the Twin Cities in a couple of weeks and He'll be a guest on the podcast and oh, talk wow. about that very thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, That's going to be a fascinating conversation. I, I hope so. I mean, you know, what, you know, I'm black, like from the city, right? Yes. And I know, like, the history as much as I know. I know there's mm-hmm. more I could know, but right. I know that there are things that have happened to African Americans um, from a policy perspective. Right. I think reading that book, I knew. Uh-huh. Right. Like, I mean, just the the way that he was able to weave the stories and understanding, like just the level of complicitness from 
from every the top, sector. every sector, everything was um, actually overwhelming mm-hmm. to to embrace it. Like you couldn't hide from it. And yeah. I think you can move around things that don't feel comfortable, but. And they were very explicit. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't sort of like, oh, we're going to be tricky and try to be subtle. It was very explicit. <laughs> you know, you used to drive around in most of the South and it would be like, inward, yeah. get out of town by six or sundown. Like, and they call them sundown towns, right? I mean, the redlining was no blacks, no Jews, no Japanese. On your mortgage, you you live in North Minneapolis, well, right? Yeah, it's probably still on your mortgage unless it, you have it, it went got, definitely. I have not unless gotten it you've off. Gotten it changed. I haven't. And what is really frustrating is as we try to redress these issues, we can't be that explicit, right? We have to be race neutral now because the laws are such that we can't make policies that favor one group of people over another. I mean, it's it, it literally says we're going to continue to perpetuate the inequities that we have created. Mm-hmm. So reparations, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a case for reparations. Tanahasi Coates. Tanahasi Coates. Um, you know what's so fascinating about that yeah, article? Yeah. I grew up in that neighborhood that he talks about in um in Chicago, West Lawndale. Like that's I went to a family funeral back in November and that's where we were. I mean, like I literally grew up in that. I, as I read that uh piece, just tears just streaming mm-hmm. down. Because I'm thinking about my grandparents, you know, my aunts and uncles. and For people that are, are listening that don't know anything about North Lawndale, you want to give any context to, to what made you so emotionally respond to that article? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think ta Coates lifted it up because it was just so exemplary of the issues that impact black Americans all over the country. But West Lawndale, North Lawndale was um, and still is an extremely impoverished community. It had historically been a Jewish community. And and it's kind of marked by these really amazing homes. They're called Greystones. And they took these, these big blocks of kind of limestone and, and built houses like you can't, you can barely bulldoze these houses. They are so well fortified. And, um, but over time, as blacks were migrating to, from the south to the north, really, uh, fleeing, um, apartheid, essentially, um, they, they would come to big cities like Detroit, Milwaukee, Kansas City, um, Chicago. Chicago and and then they would subsequently be sort of forced into certain neighborhoods and so North Lawndale was was one of those neighborhoods and there were covenants on those houses but but people were able to you know once black people started moving in all the white people moved out and so it it became this this black enclave but people were being, they were 
they were being given um, mortgages that uh, shady yeah. and subprime. And so consequently, you know, if you, it was kind of almost like rent to own kind of um, mortgages. And if you missed like one payment, like you were evicted and then they would turn around and sell it to another family and just getting rich off of the misery of, of black people. All the jobs left the community. They built uh, a jail mm. <laughs> right adjacent to the community. And, you know, people talk about the school to prison pipeline. You know, if you got a jail right <laughs> and next to the school, to a school, you know, and the kids drop it out of school in third grade, where do they go? They end up in the Cook County Jail. Drugs impacted that community. Gang violence. You know, when you hear about all the murders in Chicago, it's not all over Chicago. It's not downtown. It's not on the Magnificent, magnificent Mile, which is the beautiful Gold Coast, mm-hmm. you know, along Lakeshore Drive. It's It's in North Lawndale. It's on the south side. It's, you know, in these very concentrated uh, communities where that's happening. And there's this overabundance of guns and drugs and liquor stores (laughs) next door to the projects, next door to the church. In any any neighborhood like that near you, right? Like right. It's the same sort exactly. of setup. So in Coates' article, the case for reparations, you thought about your upbringing and your grandparents, and um, what what was it? Was it how hard their lives were and what they had to navigate? Was it um, understanding more deeply the conditions that they were surviving mm-hmm. through? Mm-hmm. Like, was it all of that? It was, it was all of that, you know, so my father spent the majority of my childhood in prison and for a long time I was, you know, I was really angry, you know, like, why would, why would you do this? But over time and particularly reading that article, you could see that the conditions were such that you almost had to be extraordinary to overcome, mm-hmm. you know, the the literal saturation of heroin and, and, and drugs that were in those communities that are in those communities. The people that, that are able to survive and make it out are, are truly exceptional. And so it, it, I think it gave me an awareness of, the challenges that my family was was dealing with is it's not just the everyday life is hard and you know you got to pull yourself up by the bootstraps kind of thing it was like people were intentionally creating situations to make sure you stayed impoverished uneducated and really a cog in the the machinery of capitalism. When I, you know, there's, um, you know, we're both in conversations all the time around these disparities, right? Mm-hmm. This, these gaps that we have in our city. And um, there's a number of conversations where I'm in, if, you know, only we um, did this thing, then this problem would be eliminated. If we could um, 
get more felons jobs, it would be eliminated, right? And so then in my head, I'm like, yeah, but I know black people at every level that are trying to navigate systems right. and, and, and hitting glass ceilings and not getting the recognition um, in their workplace and or this education gap, which, you know, I recognize that there's daily decisions that are made on whether or not you can, um, whether or not whatever those obstacles that you mentioned that your mm-hmm. your your family and, and our families have gone through. But when I went but I don't often I don't know if people fully understand all of the policies and the limitations that our community has had to go through. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this disparities could get boiled down to individual choice. Right. And if you just made different choices, this would not be a problem. And I don't know if we fully understand the generational impact yeah. and the policies that really have um, created the conditions. Can we talk? Yeah. Uh, presidential politics for a minute. Go there. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> well, you know, in 2016, Bernie Sanders was a really popular um, candidate for the Democratic nomination. But I really couldn't. And I, I, everything Bernie talks about, and even now, was really powerful to me. Like, I was feeling it. Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. You know, um, tuition, get rid of, you know, student debt, all of these things and, and more jobs. Right. Mm-hmm. But we know that Oprah Winfrey, one of the richest women in the world on the planet, not richest black women, <laughs> one of the richest women, she still is facing discrimination. She walks into Hermes, you know, with her American Express black card, and they following her around the store like she can really steal something. Oprah, <laughs> right? So unless we address the racism. Right. The policies. All of those little fixes, they're not going to change the system. I mean, it might help a few people. And, and yes, we got to do those things because we got to help a few people that need help. But simultaneously we we have to be working at the deep underlying racism that is really destroying you know you you talked about school people say poverty is the main reason why there's an achievement gap and i'm like man black people are richer than they've ever as a whole yeah than we've ever been in the history of this country yet our kids are still <laughs> failing i mean you couldn't be any more poor than W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the first black Ph.D., you know. So it's not just poverty. Yes, poverty plays a role yeah. in kids' ability. If they go to school hungry, mm-hmm. that's an issue. We need to address that. But that is not the main factor of why kids are not excelling in school, right? It's young white women, majority of our Teachers are young white women, like 85%, and smart, brilliant, really care about kids. But like I was saying earlier, they have the same mental expectations of black kids in the inner city as everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so the behaviors that young black kids do versus the same behavior in young white kids gets criminalized 
versus, oh, that's just boys being boys, yeah. right? And that implicit bias plays a role in, in their expectations. You know, I, I went to public schools in Chicago, which, you know, have been deemed some of the worst schools in the country. But I had black teachers who were like, no, you can do this. You will do this. You got, you, you will go home and do your homework and bring it back. Like they cared about the kids and they had expectations of you doing more. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, I'm in conversations all the time around education and, uh, people are like, you know, if, if families in the neighborhood, if black families only understood the, um, proficiency rates at these schools, they would choose differently. And, you know, I know from my own experience parenting mm -hmm. that um, sometimes what's valued is very different than what people expect for people to value. Mm -hmm. Not that education doesn't matter. It does. Oh, yeah. But equal to that are how am I treated? How are my kids treated? Right. Do I know someone there? I mean, it's a very relational sort of um, experience of being in a school do you feel part of a school community or not is really important right and how that plays out looks very very different and um you know i had i had two two teachers that were african-american until i got to high school uh -huh. and then i had uh three african-american women that wow. were science teachers at north high and um miss cotman was one of them who's okay. an artist Wow. And so I would see her at school and then she lived down the street from me. Beverly and then, Cotman? Beverly, okay. yes. And then I would like go. She was like my biology teacher or something. Right. Yeah. Or physics or one of them. But, <laughs> um, but then I would see her at like a performance or whatever. Right. Uh -huh. And I didn't see, like I felt that community. Right. Mm. I seen her be part of the fabric of community, right. which really mattered to me that at that matters. particular point of, of my life. Yeah. Yeah. To see your, you know, kind of elders and, and, quote, mentors in all aspects of life. And her daughter went to school with us. Yeah, that really matters. It does matter. It does matter. So for city council, for, for, your, uh, for your work as an elected, mm -hmm. um, did you come in with um, any thoughts about what you would want your legacy of service to be? Uh... Wow, that's a that's a tough question. I I didn't have a no. I didn't think about it as in terms of legacy. I I thought about it more in terms of you know we're in this moment in history and what can I do to change the dynamics for Black people living in Minneapolis in this moment? Now that could potentially be some legacy. One of the things that we're working on is revitalizing East 38th Street, which had historically been like the center of black life on the South Side. It was, it was redlined and all the things we talked about mm -hmm. earlier, but this was where black people could have businesses, could own homes and, and have commerce. Then the freeway came in and and really sort of um, disrupted all of that. And I know your family has a long history in that community as well. And so to bring that story back mm -hmm. to into existence and sort of revitalize that corridor to have the kinds of businesses 
that addresses the needs of the community today and while not displacing people who are already who have been historically in that community and paying dues and living through the hard times um you've done you've and hopefully done that will be some legacy some legacy work. network <laughs> um and one of the other things that I know you've worked on is really just really um, being out loud about what that freeway did to the community. Yes. And you've done some things to hopefully educate and re- repair, reconcile. Uh-huh. Yeah. You want to say anything about that work? Yeah. Well, one of the things that we've been doing is we created this event called Building Bridges because 35W came in and really separated sort of the black community from the white community, right? You know, you used to hear about people saying, I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, right? Well, this is wrong side of the freeway. Yeah. <laughs> and and it was so apparent that they wanted to keep it separate. The bridge that goes over 35W, the sidewalks were literally so narrow that two people walking in opposite directions, one of them would have to almost walk out into the street in order to pass each other. There was only one street light on the bridge. So at night, if you wanted to cross that bridge, you know, you kind of felt like you were taking your, you know, safety into <laughs> your own hands because yeah. you could barely see. So we created a um, a dinner on the bridge to bring both sides of the communities together and and I'm really proud to say that the Minneapolis Foundation has been helpful in that process and we appreciate it but it's about reconnecting communities physically as well as emotionally mm-hmm. and intentionally and those events have been wildly successful and really is helping towards our goal of of rebuilding that kind of community and and having these tough conversations these difficult conversations around race and equity and the things that caused this. There's a documentary, The the Jim Crow of the North, and, you know, it it really focuses on that community quite significantly Mm -hmm. um, as uh, being sort of split apart by that freeway. So we use that documentary in our conversations to help people understand, you know, the historical impacts of what happened and and how we can come together to to try to make yeah. change. I think I had a, my, I think my reaction to um, the Jim Crow of North might be as I hear you describe your reaction to uh-huh. a case for reparations. Yeah. Um, because my family, um, both North mm-hmm. was my mother, and then yeah. my dad was on the South, south side, side, and both of those communities were talked about. And then you're watching the documentary and you're like, oh, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know the people, right. you know the houses, you know the stories, you know. I'm getting emotional right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and just thinking about it and, you know, when my dad was uh, younger, he lived, um, you know, on the north side. And then when the south side opened up mm-hmm. um, for families, right. it's like, you know, the same families that lived north ended up in the same right. blocks on the south yeah. side because mm-hmm. it just it opened up for people to move, but it right. was still so restricted. Yeah. Um, and, you know, part of part of the benefit that I've um, reaped from that is the the community of people that were around us growing mm-hmm. up. Like, I definitely benefited from that. Yeah. But when you understand all of the conditions 
um, it's really quite incredible, I right. guess. You know, one of the things that we did uh, in terms of legacy, we renamed a couple of streets, yeah. uh, one after uh, Miss Clarissa Walker, who was the neighborhood calls the uh, the mother of Sabathony Community Center. And then we, we renamed Fourth Avenue after Luana Q. Newman, who was uh, the co-founder of the Minneapolis Spokesman Recorder. You know, to really, again, say we have contributed mightily to this community and we want to recognize and honor these mm-hmm. black women who are very instrumental in that. It's funny what street names will do, won't it? I yeah. mean, you know, like I've gone, like I love going to Atlanta. And part of why I like going to Atlanta is because you see street see, names of, of, of sheroes and heroes. Right. And you see places and you see history that mm-hmm. you know that, you know, we've contributed to. And you go to other cities and it's like absent of right. anything. Anyway. Yeah, and, and it's not just Martin Luther King Drive. It's yeah. like Mother King, Bernice King. That's and, right. You know, yeah. Yeah. Andrew Young Drive. People underestimate the importance of those things. Yeah. So I have one more thing because I said I was going to talk about this and I, okay. and I want to talk about it. Right. So um, we, uh, I remember bumping into you and I had just had a moment when I was a CEO at Pillsbury United where yes. we had um, a new staff that came in and the pro, uh, their pronouns were they, them. Okay. And so we had not, I've not had to confront that. So I started uh-huh. to see it on the signature line. Right. And um, in my CEO ways, I was like, no, that no. Right. Like I go and I'm like, why are we doing this? Right. right? Like we just spent all this time. There's no quotes. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, there yes. is, there's no personal statements at the bottom uh-huh. of um, email. We're trying to, you know, create a brand here. We want to have consistency. We want to make sure that we're portraying this. And I'm not sure this is something I should make exception on. So I mm. make this decision and I made it really quickly. Like I saw the email right. and I went in and 15 minutes later, I've decided like, nope, it's a no. I'm not doing this. So in the afternoon, I see you. Uh-huh. So I'm feeling guilty, right? <laughs> right? Like I'm like, I was really rash in my decision making today. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And I was already kind of like stewing on this. And I remember just asking like, is that, what should I do with this? Right. And, um, and I, and I, you know, vaguely remember <laughs> the conversation and I was a little looser on it. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, if there's a place that I'm super awkward, it's around um, pronouns. Mm-hmm. And especially when people say, you know, introduce yourself, you know, say where you work, right. your title and your pronouns. And right. I'm like, I've never had to do this my entire life. Yeah. Um, I wish it was it was it felt more optional. Mm-hmm. And um, yet it, it's an area that I'm just trying to to understand. So I mentioned that I did this oral history project right in doing that work i shifted and it, this whole pronoun thing is is a relatively new phenomenon it's not super new right because you know as as trans people come out they they want to be addressed as the pronoun that they identify with but it was never like blatant but i i think there's been a much younger community who are not identifying with any pronoun and using they, them to identify themselves. And it's it's really about trying to respect people's identities and not make a big scene about it. 
So if we all introduce ourselves with our pronouns, then we it, create comfort. We create sense. right. It becomes less about the person and more about all of us. Because you know we do. There are a lot of I use the acronym GNC, but gender nonconforming people now, and yeah, the pronouns are challenging. Like, is it she? Is it he? I I don't know. Right. And it was like, I was with them. And then like, well, who else was there? Right. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, yeah. I really struggle with just getting it right. And I think my awkwardness doesn't, doesn't help. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say but it's, I, but I it's hear important your point. Yeah. for a lot of people yeah. um, really to be acknowledged as the, um, yeah. the, the pronouns. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely not discounting that. And mm-hmm. I, and I understand that point of it. Um, and I think I understand now better just the, the conditions, right? That the conditions are important for someone to, to perhaps feel safe enough or comfortable enough to be able to, um, identify as they choose. Um, but yeah, I'm going to have to spend some time, but you know, (laughs) when, when I think about people around issues of race, Mm -hmm. like this was the first time where I'm like, oh, this must be a little bit how it might feel if you not if you're not used to talking about it or, 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 or being in that conversation, um, and so I've admittedly um, probably made some mistakes and as I'm trying to learn mm-hmm. and, and develop in that way. We're humans and humans make mistakes. That's that's the, the hallmark of being human mm-hmm. is that we make mistakes. Hopefully, you know, we learn and we don't keep making the same mistake. Right. We make different mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> True that. Any uh, anything you want to say before we uh, end the conversation? Um, I really think that having these kinds of dialogues is really critical to moving humanity forward. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Of course. I am uh, super proud of you. Oh, thank you. I'm as proud or even more proud of you, Shonda Smith-Baker. Ah, Andrea (laughs) Jenkins, the one and only. Thank you so much. Uh, Thank you. And there you have it. That's Andrea Jenkins and Shonda Smith-Baker. Just want to say thank you to Twin Cities PBS Minnesota Original for providing us Black Pearl by Andrea Jenkins. To listen to more episodes and learn more about upcoming events, please visit conversationswithshonda.org. You can also follow Shonda on Twitter at Shonda S. Baker. This is Sue Pak Keenitz from the Minneapolis Foundation. Thank you for listening to Conversations with Shonda.